Hey, everybody. It's Amy Walter, editor-in-chief of The Cook Political Report. You're listening to The Odd Years, a political podcast designed for the off years, literally the odd-numbered years where there are no scheduled federal elections. Today, the focus is on PBI. This is something that the Cook Political Report started way back in 1997 as a tool to be able to compare the leaning, the partisan leanings of one district to another. And somebody who knows more about this than anyone else, even though he was in seventh grade when the PVI first started, is Dave Wasserman, who has gone through the work of not just compiling all of this data in one place, but also readjusting the formula for our PBI and readjusting that for all of the years previous. So we have one consistent data set. David Wasserman, please help our listeners understand what the PBI is and what this new system that you've put together for reevaluating the PBI means. The partisan voting index is our metric to compare the partisanship of all 435 congressional districts in 50 states. And what we do is we compare the presidential results in each and every district to the national results. And uh, we use two presidential cycles to do that. So it used to be that we gave equal weight to the two most recent presidential results in a district. We've updated our formula to lean in to the trends underway in rapidly changing districts. So we put 75% weight on the most recent presidential election and 25% weight on the preceding presidential election. And so, for example, uh, we're using the presidential results for 2020 in every district to determine the current PVIs, uh, and we're weighting that 75% compared to 25% for 2016. And in most districts, this doesn't really alter the math that much. It doesn't change the PVI score of a district. Most districts that are, you know, R, were R plus four under the old formula are still R plus four or D plus two or whatever they, they were. But in districts where there's been really recent big transformation, such as in the suburbs of Dallas or Atlanta or in South Florida or South Texas, this new formula does reflect, I think, the truer expression of how that district is voting. Excellent explanation. And when we talk about this D plus two or R plus four, just again, it, it, helping to, to explain it more specifically uh, in comparing it to the national number, what you're saying is if a district is D plus two, that means it's voting two points more Democrat more democratic than the national popular vote. So if the presidential popular vote, the Democrat got 51%. What we're saying is in this district, the presumption would be that a Democratic candidate would be closer to 53%. Is that right? That's right. And so we're using the two-party vote share. And this is a bit different from how some others might approach calculating partisanship. But you know, if, if a district is R plus four, that means that if a Republican candidate got 49% of the vote nationally, we might expect this district to give the Republican 
53%. Right. So, Dave, let's dig into this, especially the trends that we've seen over these last 25 plus years. We know there are fewer and fewer competitive seats than when we first started the PBI back in the late 1990s. So talk to us about that. And then the second thing would be, tell us why you think this happened. Yeah, well, we've seen a decimation of swing seats since 1997, and that's nothing new. We've been writing and talking about that for a long time. There were 159 districts with PVI scores between R plus five and D plus five, which is our traditional definition of a swing seat back in, in 1997. Now there are 82. So that is pretty much cut in half from uh, the high watermark. And we've, even, we've seen an even greater decline in what we would call hyper swing seats or seats between D plus three and R plus three. That's gone down from 107 back in 1999 uh, to 45 seats today. What is different, I think, about having this all in one place is it gives us a powerful tool to be able to compare the impact of elections and redistricting on how uh, the number of swing seats, as well as solidly Democratic and Republican seats, has changed. And so we've got 13 unique data sets for PVI values, and six of those are the result of updating scores following redistrictings, and seven of those are following presidential elections. And so uh, those presidential elections account for 58% of the drop in swing seats. In other words, recalculating these data sets to reflect just the changing voting patterns across the country, areas that are red getting redder, areas that are blue getting bluer, versus 42% of the decline uh, of the net decline, a result from redistricting years. Um, so, Dave, uh, let's dig into that a little bit. Um, and specifically, the point you make in your piece that when it comes to the districts that have trended more Democratic over these last 25 years, much of that movement is from the electoral change versus the movement uh, of seats that were maybe slightly red or more competitive going darker red, redistricting is the big reason for that. That's right. And so what we noticed is that the number of solidly Republican seats has increased the most as the result of redistricting, whereas the, sol the number of solidly Democratic seats has increased the most after we recalculate uh, these scores based on the new election results. The reason for that is that Democrats in the last 26 years have gained an awful lot of ground in the suburban battlegrounds where the real plurality of the American electorate resides. And then Republicans have had more power to redraw the lines in the last couple of decades. And so they've used that power to move a lot of this that have seen erosion in Republican support back to higher ground. And so, for example, in Texas, where you had 14 swing seats heading into the 2021 redistricting cycle. Republicans redrew the map. Now there are only two. Dave, what is what you've seen from the past 25 plus years, uh, the, the erosion of the swing seats and new ones that are coming up or old ones that are no longer competitive? 
What do you think this tells us about the next 25 years? I mean, are, have we really reached basically the, the end of the line in terms of polarization? Could it get even redder and bluer? You know, what's interesting is the 2020 election was actually a depolarizing election for the first time in a while. And we saw the number of swing seats increase from 70 to 90 and then go back down to 82 after the most recent round of redistricting. Big reason for that was that Joe Biden did better or Donald Trump did worse in uh, a number of suburban districts that are diversifying or have a lot of college graduates. But we also saw Trump do better than he did in 2016 in a number of working class districts, whether they were predominantly white districts in the Midwest or Hispanic districts in South Texas, South Florida. So these districts, from whether from the left or from the right, came into the competitive battleground. And sometimes congressional voting patterns lag behind presidential voting patterns. So, so I think the jury is out on whether we'll continue to see this depolarization in 2024 or whether 2020 was simply a blip in this larger downward trend. One last thing in, in talking about redistricting and its impact, we know a lot of states, especially a lot of states where Democrats are in charge of governing, there are either independent or outside line drawing entities. Tell us about those maps, the maps that were drawn basically by non-legislative bodies versus the ones that were drawn by partisans in the old school way of the way we think about line drawing. What's fascinating in diving into these numbers is the difference between states that have passed some type of reform or had their maps drawn by courts or commissions versus those that have persisted in very partisan processes, whether they're drawn by Republicans or Democrats. And when we add up the states that uh, used uh, some type of, of other system, whether it was uh, a state like California or Colorado or Michigan, which have recently passed independent commissions to draw their lines, whether it's a state that has a, had a longstanding bipartisan commission like New Jersey or Arizona, or whether it's a state that had a divided legislature or some kind of stalemate that led to a court drawing the map, for instance, Virginia uh, or Minnesota or New York, when we add up those 18 states, they make up about 47% of all congressional districts, but they are home to 66% of the swing districts between R plus five and D plus five. So we, we've seen this bifurcation where the partisan drawn states have really seen the biggest drop in competition and those that have passed reforms or have seen courts intervene have the, the highest rate of competitiveness. So it, it definitely gives some ammunition to those on the reform side that say, see, uh, gerrymandering is part of the problem in terms of the hollowing out of competitive seats in the country. Right. And what it tells us is that with this very narrowly divided House, the future of the House is going to be decided in states predominantly with more neutral maps in place like Arizona, Michigan, Colorado, these are and California. These are where we can expect 
most of the the hot races to be. Right. Even though the biggest states like Florida, Texas, uh, Pennsylvania will continue to see maybe more partisan drawn maps. Pennsylvania was actually drawn by a court this most recent round. That's right. And so it has one of the highest rates of competitive districts. But you're absolutely right about Florida and Texas. And if Democrats, for instance, were to get their way the next time around in New York, then we could expect a much less competitive map in place there. And David, this is fantastic work for our Cook Political Report subscribers. You have access to all of this, all the data, all the maps. Go and check it out. And of course, uh, David's analysis of this is quite incisive, help you understand a little bit more about the current makeup in Congress, how we got there, and potentially where we're going. And I'll just add, over the years, this has been one of the most requested resources for uh, academic researchers, for subscribers. Our inbox, uh, you know, has has just been full over the years of requests for this. And so I'm so thrilled that we're able to provide this in one place. That's our show. Thank you so much for listening. Be sure to follow The Odd Years on your favorite podcast platform, leave a review. And if you're a Cook Political Report subscriber, check out our exclusive bonus content at cookpolitical.com. See you next time on The Odd Years.